Almost Awakened podcast, a no-nonsense approach to spirituality with your hosts, Brittany Hartley and Bill Reed. Here we dive deep into the wisdom traditions while acknowledging insightful breakthroughs in science, psychology, and human development. Our goal is to explore the good life and the very best of spirituality, no-nonsense required. Check us out at almostawaken.org where you can check out past episodes, make a donation, email us a question or comment, or find out more about the resources we shared. And now, today's podcast episode. Brittany Hartley, how are you? I'm so good. How are you, Bill? Good, good. I'm really excited. Today's conversation is going to be a ton of fun, and uh, I think folks are going to deeply enjoy this. Yeah, we started putting it together and then kind of our outline got longer and longer. So this might have to be a, a two-parter because this I is hope really, so, really good. Yeah, yeah. this is going to be a really good conversation and one that comes up a lot. I think half of the debates between religious people and atheists that you see on YouTube and these big debates that they have at colleges, this is this is the question. How do you define good without God? Like, how do you do it? Yeah. Um, so this is going to be really good, but before we start, I have, um, an audience response, um, that I just wanted to share just cause I thought it was so nice. I don't know if this person wanted to be public, so I'll just say his name was a Clark, but he said, I just finished this episode, the last episode that we did and had to log on to express my deep appreciation for this discussion. I've felt so lonely the last few years grappling with existential ramifications of deconstructing Mormonism, then Christianity, then God. I'm past the point of feeling like I need a lifeline, but listening to the two of you have these deep discussions and grapple with the same feelings and thoughts I've had over the past three years has been so reassuring. And then to hear Brittany offer the comment at the end about bravery of those staring down these questions, it melted me. Thank you for doing this mm. good work and making this content accessible to people like me. And that just that just is what we want to do, right? There are some people who when they start deconstructing that like wrecking ball, like just keeps going until there's nothing. And there's a lot of shifting that has to be done to reconstruct. And that just, that message just goes to what we're trying to do here. And so part of that is going to be what we're going to talk about today, which is how to shift your morality post deconstruction. Right. Like you, you grew up in a system that told you how to do things. It told you right from wrong and now you're deconstructing it and what is right and what is wrong and who determines it, who enforces it, who gets to make the rules and how do you navigate your own little world, um, your internal world and outer world uh, as you start to figure out like which rules was I given that don't work and need discarded, which rules do work and I need to hang on to and which new rules need created. Yeah. And the hard thing is that, and Bill and I were talking about this uh, off air before we started, is that it's not like Bill and I have created, like, here are the new 10 commandments that will perfectly mm. serve you in every situation. Um, yeah. And so I've seen people, a lot of people make this transition as their, you know, their morality was kind of placed around God or religion, they lose it. And it's kind of like a toddler, it's like a little bit stumbly for a little bit. And so we're just kind of going to be giving our thoughts and feelings on all the aspects of morality, hopefully to just help you if you're in this space. Yeah, no, this could be a fun. I looked over the outline, looked over some of the questions you're asking, listened to some material, including Sam Harris, the thing I sent you. And I listened to a debate today called Good Without God. And uh, 
I, I think this is, there's so much stuff here that, again, I don't know that we'll cover it all and I'm already occupying some of the time just talking <laughs> about how we won't do it. <laughs> yeah, so how we're gonna outline this is I've just kind of lumped together as I've listened to like thousands of these debates because I find them interesting. I've kind of lumped together some of the topics and arguments that often come up. And so I'll just kind of like outline those. And then I'm just going to use my friend Bill here as just like a case study, because what's interesting about you, Bill, is that you're it, it's one thing to say that I think I've become a better person, which I think we all think that about ourselves at any time. But when you ask your wife and children and close friends and family members, has this person become a more moral, loving you know, person, and they say yes, well, then a shift has happened. You know, there's something that mm -hmm. happened there. So I'm going to be yeah. using you as a case study as we go over this because your morality really did change in a perceivable way mm. post deconstruction. And so we're going to, I'm going to dig into you a little bit as my Let's case study here. All right. So the first thing is that, so last time we talked, we talked about, um, God and how we kind of created God and all this kind of thing. But the pushback to that idea um, that you get a lot from religious people is how can you live a moral life without God? And I watched a debate this morning on from Reverend Sharpton, and he said, how can you possibly, if there's no God, if there's no external sense of morality, then there's no right and wrong and there's no way to orient yourself in the world because it's all subjective and then it turns into moral relativism. So how can you make choices about right and wrong without God? And this is a huge question that I think we need to tackle if you're in a space in your life where you're doing spiritual reconstruction. So the two things that come up the most when you talk about what is morality, how do we get the sense of morality, the two pillars that we have for morality. The first one is reciprocity. And then the second one is empathy. And human morality gets a little bit more complex than that because we suffer in thousands of different ways. But it's always, those are kind of the pillars, right? And so the answer to the question, how do you first orient yourself in the world post deconstruction is the golden rule, which we know is a part of every religion, is a part of every culture as far back, you know, as we have writing. Um, and it includes the golden rule kind of includes re reciprocity and empathy. And so the first layer where we can make a reference point between good and bad is just suffering, right? So the argument that says that without God, you don't have a reference point, we actually can get a reference point just with suffering, right? So the suffering and happiness of conscious creatures gives us that line. So, you know, it appears in every culture, the golden rule. And the reason that we have it is because evolutionarily we had these two strands going. So in order to survive, you had to be selfish, like you had to feed yourself, but you also needed to develop um, this other ability, which is to realize that I'm a human having a human experience. It seems like you're a human too. And then you develop some form of empathy and that helps for survival too. And so like the big bombshell for me was that animals also have a sense of morality. So rats, for example, have this rule 
that if you're playing and you win 100% of the time, everyone will stop playing with you. They'll kick you out of rat club. You have to lose 10% of the time or the society will essentially kick you out for not playing fair. And there's no commandments. Like there's no rat Moses. There's no rat Jesus. Like all that happened within itself, right? For survival that you have to balance your individual needs with the needs of the group. And you don't have to insert a God there in order to make that work. And so I just want to ask, you know, as you're reading Sapiens, when you were coming out of deconstruction and you realize that um, rats have their own ethical code and bonobos, for example, they um, have this pattern of reconciliation. Of course, it's sexual because everything with bonobos is sexual. But like makeup sex, which is like a human thing, that's a very like animal thing, too, you know. Yeah. And so there's all these tools and it's not just with humans, but it's with animals. And that was just like a huge bombshell for me. So what was it for you as you're reading Sapiens, you're learning that humans are older than 6,000 years old. And how did it change your sense of like what we are as humans? So Sapiens was a huge book, which is obviously why you're referencing it. I, I mentioned it a ton over the years. Um, Sapiens took me from tribalism, kind of that last strand of tribalism in my head to going like, look, we're all human. Like you pointed out earlier, we're all human having a human experience. I begin to understand what motivates humans to create the rules. So bigger tribes always smash smaller tribes, right? So if you're a tribe of 20 and your mechanism is intimacy, that's how you know each other. You, you, you play together, you hunt together, you gather together, you talk together, you sleep together. Uh, you play music together, you dance together, you're going to have a really tight-knit, cohesive, collaborative group. The trouble is that a group of uh, 150 is going to kick your ass. And the 150 is operating, or just a little under that, operating on gossip, right? And then all of a sudden, myth comes in, and myth is the mechanism, and it allows a group bigger than 150. And now simply going, hey, we're the good guys, and they're the bad guys, and we the good guys put you know, face paint on and the bad guys don't. And suddenly now you have this uh, divisive us versus them mentality and you create rules that benefit us and you create rules that punish them. And so as I listened to Sapiens, I just realized like, oh, we're just humans trying to survive. We're just trying to live. And then to bring in another thing, which is this whole free will idea, the moment you realize that you're doing actions 300 milliseconds before your brain has a conscious idea around why. So for instance, about a week ago, I'm watching a video of two kangaroos and they are in a fight and it looks like a bar fight. I mean, they're picking, picking each other up. Like it was in like a residential place, a camp area or something uh, in Australia. And this one kangaroo picks the other up and throws them across the table and he comes back and punches and kicks. And, and I thought I was watching two grown men who were mm -hmm. one had taken the other seat. And in, in the human world, when that thing happens, you, you split those two guys apart and you question them and you say, why did you do what you did? And you go, oh, he took my seat and I came back and I asked him to move and he wouldn't do that. And the kangaroos have none of that. The kangaroos just know that something bothered them inside mm -hmm. and they're going to punch you. <laughs> that's it. And my system yeah. is I'm going to, I'm going to protect what's mine and defend, you know, mine and so this idea that there's stories behind why we do what we do, if we if we mentally understand 
that today in, a human can think thoughts and say words. But if we go back far enough, we had sex, we fought, we ate long before we had uh, thoughts about those things or um, language to describe those things. And so once you understand that behavior is just behavior, that even as amoebas, we are get, amoebas get away from threats and move closer to things that nourish them, right? And, and so you take all the stories out of why we do what we do. Long answer, sorry. Why we do what we do. This is why we have to definitely have at least two parts. <laughs> um, sapiens helped me see that the human race is just the human race and that every human being has a right to avoid as much trauma and shame uh, as possible so long as they don't cause uh, unintentional harm or unnecessary trauma to others. And so my morality from the moment that I thought those thoughts, I had to start thinking about a morality that incorporated them. Mm, incorporated other people's Incorporated choices. all humans being equal and maybe even all life on earth being equal. Like why is the cow mm. that I'm eating my hamburger from more important, you know, less important than my life and if I think about like how many chickens died so Bill Real could live, how many cows have died so I could yeah. live, I just want to always have those kinds of things at least in my consciousness so that I make wise decisions about how to treat others and life in general. Mm -hmm. Okay, there's like two or three things I want to riff on there before we move on. But I love what you said about deconstructing that um, it's not like there's a bad side of me that I'm trying to fight in order to get in heaven. I'm just human. And that was such like a liberating thought for me because what happens is we have these two sides of us evolutionarily. One is like feed yourself, like be selfish, like be an ass and think of yourself. And then the other is like, oh, but be social too because you need this tribe to survive. And like both of those strands like continue like generation after generation, right? It's, we have both of those. And so what religion does is it'll take the, um, the social kind of aspects and say, this is your spirit. This is the good side of you. This is the da, 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 da. And then this side, this is the devil talking to you. And this is the bad side of you that you have to overcome or the body, you know, in Christianity, it's often like, this is the body and it wants to do bad things. And so you have to have your spirit, like, you know, crush it and repress it and all these things. And so um, it's really interesting that religions will highlight, you know, the, the social evolutionary traits as your spirit, as what's good. And then the selfish ones as bad and evil and Satan and all those things. And how freeing is it to just say like both those sides of me are human. And then I don't have to hate myself when I think of something that I would be ashamed of to say out loud, like once in a while as a mother, you will resent the independence that your kids take from you. Mm. I haven't met a mother who hasn't had that feeling. Right. But it's so hard to say out loud because we have this structure that says, if you have any individualistic thoughts, you're a bad person. And when someone told me that that thought is just a human thought and you're just human, you know, it just kind of like, okay, like I can deal with this. I can make space for myself for all of me rather than this kind of like dualistic way that religion goes about it, you know? Um, 
are you ready to move on? Because I want to just have one. Yeah, yeah. go ahead. Mm -hmm. I'll, I'll be really quick. So I just want to put this up on the screen. So this is Teresa here says, this is why I've been vegan for nearly 20 years. And I just want to add a little thought, Teresa. Think of it this way. The, the reason to be vegan is that we value what humans call lower life forms as equal to our life form. Hence, it isn't worth killing something that is less because maybe it isn't less at all. The trouble with the ideas that go into veganism, I'll just throw a little wrench in it. If you value all life forms equally, then in order to grow vegetation, you also have to kill insects in the ground. Earthworms get chopped up by the plow, for instance. So anytime we plant food, we are also killing other life forms in order to do it. And you've already made a negotiated uh, agreement that all life forms are of equal value. Hence, by eating plant life, you're also killing other life as well, even if you don't decide that plants are of equal value, that only animals are, because now you have to draw a line like, well, okay, bugs are less than cattle, but cattle are equal to humans. And so it's, it, it becomes a, again, not that veganism is wrong or bad. I, I'm grateful for those who do. I think it is a better way to live, but it also comes with complex contradictions and complexities in that argument that have to be worked out. Anyway, small point, let's move on. It's not a small point, but it is a complex one. It's not yeah, an somebody easy, else, veganism, selective yeah. killing. It's yeah. not as easy as the some of the vegan arguments make it out to be, right? Which and it gets very tough. And it's one of the reasons why Albert Cam Camus, the you know, it's pronounced Camus, whatever, um, philosophers talks about how suicide is the first problem of philosophy. And the reason is because you are placed into a universe that you didn't consent to. And in order to live, even as a vegan. It requires violence on other conscious creatures. Yeah. And like that, yeah, that's a tough dragon to face when you are doing deconstruction, that in order for yeah. you to exist uh, in a system that without your consent placed you there, you have to perpetuate violence. And so the, it, it is a tricky one. It's one that I thought about for like a good year, probably like really like I didn't like that in order to live, it required mm. violence. And mm. eventually the way that I made sense of it was this idea that if I were to remove myself from the system that I didn't consent to of life, then it would spread suffering and essentially make life on earth worse. And I would become the monster that I was trying to defeat. Yeah. And so the best thing, and this is again, Albert Camus is the best thing to do when you're faced with that question is not to commit suicide, but to rebel and to find a moral kind of life that is worth living that justifies your existence. And that was an interesting little shift for me, but it's a good, it's a good and deep question. That's not a little question. No, no, no. And you make a good point that to be a human being or any life form for that matter, to be any life form, pretty much, I mean, there might be exceptions, but very few. To be any life form means that you will have to inevitably impose trauma on other life forms regardless. Like, like if you create hierarchies and go like, okay, no more hierarchies, the reality is you can't avoid it. There are still hierarchies of life and you have deemed it that you are willing to traumatize other life forms even to the point of death so that you as a human being can continue. It, there's it no way around it. There's no way around it, and but I still think it's not the best thing to do to remove yourself because then that just increases the suffering. 
right? Mm. And so you just have to try to make life fundamentally better and worth living for yourself, but also those around you and those who come after you. You know, the, yes. the goal is hopefully future generations don't suffer as much as we suffer, right? Yes. And, and regardless of what your diet is, we as human beings have gotten away from being able to see how the sausage is made. Yeah. And the uh, present awareness of how the sausage is made all throughout time would have almost would have uns, uh, would have certainly given us more respect for the life that did have to be taken. Yeah, 100%. And yeah, and so there are disadvantages to modern uh, the progress into the modern age and what all that means. Anyway, we're right. getting away from it. Sorry. Right. It's like who 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 labeled food as like natural resource. Yeah. It's like resource. Like I don't know. That's like how mm. an economist would label like a cow. You know. Um, <laughs> but yeah, have you ever seen the show Alone? It's like a survival kind of show. Yeah. yeah, yeah. There was one guy in the show who left because he was so like heart sick from having to kill so many things, mm. like with his own hands. Like yeah. it was so heavy on him that he eventually left. And easier to go like to Costco. So interesting. Yeah, it's way easier to go to Costco. <laughs> okay. <laughs> this is only page one, guys. <laughs> okay, so I have I have two I have two more little little questions before we go into it. So mm. um before we go on into talking about the golden rule. So this is a really interesting article, and I didn't have this in the outline before. So I'm gonna catch your like off-the-cuff response sure. to this. Ready? Here's a philosophical question. Let's say you live in a country with a dictator and the only thing you know about that dictator is one dictator has a religion, believes in God, and one dictator doesn't. Which one would you choose if that's the only information that you have? Yeah. I'm taking the religious dictator. You are. Yeah. I am. So, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So Jordan Peterson argued that you take the religious dictator because then they at least believe there's someone above them, which like is a, is a fair argument. Someone like Mitt Romney, who when all the Republicans were doing one thing, once in a while he goes rogue. And I think it's because he believes that there's something higher than the Republican Party, right? And so here's, here's my argument. Here's my counter argument, why I think I would choose the dictator without religion. Ready? So I think that if you choose the dictator with religion, I think what happens is that the temptation is too strong that if the dictator is at the top and speaks for God and all those things, they essentially become God and that system is already there. Right. And so I think I'd rather have a dictator without it because at worst they would be, you know, a bad person or a terrible person or a dictator or a powerful dictator but men can be destroyed, right? Yeah. As soon as that dictator becomes God, they are much harder to destroy. So you go to somewhere like North Korea and it's essentially still like a theocracy, right? It's really hard to destroy a dictator that's God. So I would choose the dictator without it because I think the temptation to become God when they believe in God is too yeah. close anyway no no yeah if, if he if he hurts too many people then other people behind the scenes work out ways to get him out of the way 
Anyway, interesting, interesting question. Mm. Okay, so let's talk about, so we're still talking about the golden rule. The golden rule is the basis for all human morality um, and it exists everywhere. And there's only one problem with the golden rule, one real um, lack that it has is that it doesn't really tell you what to do with people who are sadists or sociopaths or psychopathic tendencies. Because if you want other people to hurt you and you want to hurt others, the golden rule doesn't really work the same way. And so Christopher Hitchens points this out, that if you were born without empathy, or even worse, if you were born with the desire that you receive pleasure in your body by hurting others based on, you know, maybe you were born with psychopathic tendencies and had trauma, right? Then um, the golden rule doesn't really work because I want to treat you in a different way than you're wanting to be treated. And mm -hmm. so you still have to make that judgment call. But the thing that he says is that even though, though the golden rule isn't perfect because we have that group of people that it's not really perfect for, it's still preferable to the idea that evolution created those people than the idea that God created morals, created the Ten Commandments, created someone who had no inner compass and a life of trauma, and then punished that person for it. You know, like, like that mm. makes less sense. So you do have that small portion of the population that you have to, just like the rats, right? Just like the rats and the rat rules, you either have to learn empathy or you have to act according to as if you have empathy in order to play in the playground or else you really can't play in the playground and some sort of facility is the best kind of place for you. Yeah. I, I would only add that, yes, I mean, on the surface, the golden rule sounds beautiful. And I think it is the premise by which all morality has to start, that this other human being in front of you deserves the same respect, compassion, kindness, opportunity, um, reduction of trauma, ways to soften up their life as you want to have. But every human being being alien to each other, as you already pointed out, the, the needs, wants, uh, goals are all going to be so different that what I want to feel safe might infringe on what makes you safe. And hence we have to figure out ways to go like, you almost have to go, we're just going to have to work out the collective good. We're not going to be able to make everybody get everything they want. Um, um, again, this gets off into the weeds where I would just add that like, maybe we want to get to a world where everybody gets a, a, a standard living income that's sufficient to provide basic needs. And then anybody who wants to go above and beyond that can, like you can go work extra. But then the trouble is that the collective amount of widgets that need made and the because a lot of people would step off the rat race, right? And so the collective number of widgets that need made and food produced. And so now we go back to either a hunter-gatherer age, or we just agree that there's no way to exactly do that. Um, all of this stuff gets complex. I was going to say at the beginning of this, of this episode that this is a really complex discussion and it really involves letting go of all binary thinking and recognizing the good and the bad from all angles in it. I think the big shift for me on this one is that if you are taught that morality and God is a top-down kind of thing, like God 
gives the commandments and the Bible and the prophets and the da da da, like it's a top down way that morality gets to you. You have to actually make the shift that morality is actually a bottom up kind of principle, right? So if you are the rat and you are winning 100% of the time because you're not playing nicely, they will not let you play in the playground, right? Mm. You are not allowed to play with us because you are not showing enough empathy to be safe in our tribe. Right. Yeah. And so when you're talking about someone who's a sadist or sociopath, my favorite, my favorite way to, to explain like psychopathic tendencies is, um, you know, you have the trolley problem, which, you know, I went to school for philosophy. You would not believe how intense these trolley problems get. There's like 10 <laughs> tracks. You have to like decide who you're going to kill. This trolley problem gets out of control, but most people would flip the switch and, you know, save one, you know, kill one person if it saves five or 10 people or whatever. And to make that more complex, if you're on the trolley and in order to flip the switch, you have to push an overweight person off of the train with your bare hands in order to flip the switch, a psychopath doesn't see really the difference between those two scenarios, the switch or actually doing it you know, because the emotion isn't involved as much. And so I, I always thought that was a really interesting way of explaining it. But so even for that population, it's not like we have to figure out, well, what does God say about these kinds of people? We see in the animal world, you just don't get to play in the playground as much as everybody else because you need a certain amount of empathy in order to play. And so it's the switch from like a bottom up instead of a top down way of doing morality, which I think is a really healthy shift. Mm. Yeah. I mean, you can change that, the trolley track question. I mean, the moment you start putting people on one side, that is a smaller number of people, but they're people you care about or you mm -hmm. have connection to, mm -hmm. then you start deciding those things very differently. I don't care if you put 10 million strangers on one side. If my grandkids on the other track, I'm, I'm flipping the switch and he's not going to be the one that gets hurt. And so how do you create a, a set of laws uh, and morality that take into account or discard those kinds of ideas? Yeah. To make it even more complex, which I shouldn't because we're already in the weeds, but uh, there's such interesting work. I think it's Paul Bloom who does who does work on empathy and that there are weaknesses in empathy. So like you're talking about where um, with your grandson, if you show they do these studies, if you show one starving kid in Africa, can you help her with ten dollars? You know, they'll they'll pay, let's say, an average of ten dollars to help this child. If you show her and her brother, it goes down. If you yeah, show it doesn't her, get better. It, gets worse. it doesn't get better. But like. <laughs> logically like yeah, maybe i'll get 15, 15 you know <laughs> but it actually gets lower because as our brains our brains have a limit for like i can only take care of like five people like my that's family that's why sally struthers was so successful showing one kid at a time here's here's <laughs> yeah. you know here's gary and gary, just gary. You know, you just all the other kids are month, fine you can feed gary yeah for a whole all month. the other yeah. kids are fine if we can just save gary then everything <laughs> will be okay <laughs> And it. so there are there are weaknesses to empathy that we can yeah. kind of think through. But yeah. the basis of all of our morality is always is always empathy. And it's not created from the top down, from God down. It's just created from the animal kingdom up from for survival. So yeah. then what happens is this need to create a middleman. 
And so this is very, this is very common in religion, but also outside of religion. So most people think that rather than have these conversations and all this chaos and how do I make sense of right and wrong, I need some kind of middleman to help make these decisions. And I want something to cling to that gives me a sense of order. And so, you know, in the West, that's going to be the Bible. And so we have this weird argument that doesn't even make sense if you look at it for more than 10 seconds, that they say, oh, how I make my decisions about right and wrong, I follow the Bible. It's like, okay, so if you're following the Bible, how do you know to take out all the nice, you know, things from the Sermon on the Mount, but you're going to leave behind the genocide and the genital mutilation and the rape and the slavery and the incest? How do you know that those scriptures are good? And these scriptures, like, you know, they're just, you know, human things that humans do, you know, how, how do you do that? And so it's this weird thing that they don't realize that if you're, that they're using their inner compass and you can actually take out that middleman, which is the Bible that they're saying that they're clinging to and just use that inner compass that I think rape and slavery are wrong. And I think these really nice scriptures about Jesus, those, those make me want to be a better person. I think those are good. Um, But there's no way, there's nothing in the Bible that is clear like that. You're picking and choosing, even if you're saying the Bible is the way that I make sense of my right and wrong. And so what I realized is that for people, um, I used to think when I was a teenager that if you just got rid of all the dictators and cult leaders and prophets, we could all like be free, right? And then I realized that, oh, we create cult leaders, we create dictators, we create prophets because we're so scared of having to make decisions in a very ethically gray world where you're trying to, you know, navigate other people's Mm. feelings and human experiences. And it's so overwhelming that when you get some authority that says, I'll tell you what to do, I'll tell you the path. It's like, Oh, thank God. He's going to tell me, you know, he's going to tell me the path. It's usually he. Um, it usually is a he, isn't it? it? Yeah, I was gonna, I was gonna correct myself and say he or she, but you know what? Statistically, no, just we're just gonna he. go with he. <laughs> the number of female, high demand fundamentalist religion or cult leaders who have imposed deep trauma is probably one to every five hundred men that do it. Yeah, we'll just say he. Okay. <laughs> we'll let uh, we'll let the the women off the hook a little bit on that one. Yeah. And so, you know, we have the the bite model. That's how we rate organizations on a scale of cultiness. But what we don't realize is that for most things that we consider, you know, on the cult scale, it's not something that people are forced into at gunpoint. You know, people choose cults of various degrees because it feels so overwhelming. A fear of freedom is one of our four existential human fears. And so there's this tendency to cling to some kind of middleman, but the middleman is just a facade because anything that's going to act as a middleman is going to be human in some way. And therefore it's going to be messy and you're going to have to end up making decisions and picking and choosing anyway. Yeah. And, and again, everybody's going to draw that line in a different place. So it's not like you can get 10 people together, you know, get the wisest 10 people of your tribe together and let those guys make decisions. They're going to disagree with each other and people are still going to get hurt regardless of where each tribe or system or society draws the line. Yeah. It was a really interesting 
thing that Reverend Sharpton said in that debate. He said, you know, if you don't have God, what do you do? Just whoever, whoever's in charge, whoever's having the conversation just decides what's moral. You just decide every four years what's moral. And he got a laugh from like his, you know, kind of side of the debate that that's what a funny thing, you know, that, that, you know, people just get together and decide what's moral. And it's like, as if the Bible didn't like change its mind multiple times about what's moral or not, you know, I don't know. I thought it was like such a funny thing to like get a point on. I'm like, I don't think you think that's the argument you think it is. (laughs) No, no, no. And you're hitting on something that needs to be said somewhere along the way of having this conversation, which is, you know, the, the religionist, uh, or the theist, uh, the folks who say there is something out there and he does have a set of rules, she does have a set of rules. Again, it's almost always a he, right? Um, this I, um, Let me try to see if I can say this right. They, Those folks like to pretend as though um, that's clear evidence that there's God because there's rules and we need them. And then if if you have people who don't believe in God, then it is moral relativism. But the reality is no religion has kept their rules straight. Every system's rules disagree, at least in part, with every other religious system's rules. So if we go like, oh, yeah, there must be a God. I'll take the Christian one. Let me read the Old Testament. And a woman who's raped, her dad can receive, you know, 30 pieces of silver from uh, the rapist. And he now has a right to marry the, the, the woman he raped, his victim. And so, like you're pointing out, there is no clear-cut way to go like, oh, yeah, like the guys 100 years ago, they believed in God too, but those 20 things need to come out and these 10 things need to be added in. It's always relativism, whether you believe in a specific God or not. Like, it's all relativism. And yeah. and anybody who wants to argue that is going to have to really endure a lot of counter-questions that walk them right into the corner that their religion hasn't been consistent. Hence, there is no consistency. People are always changing it all the time. Some of the things that we said came from the mouth of God have caused uh, uh, innumerable harm and trauma to people. And some of the things that are good, religion couldn't even figure out, such as slavery. Hmm. So good. It, It takes me back to, you know, this conversation has been going on so long that, you know, there's this classic question in Euthyphro, Socrates, that is good. Is there good because God says it? Good, it's good, or is it good because it's good, and then God's just pointing to it like it's good yeah. outside of God, right? So if you ask this question to Christian people, you're either way you go as a as a religious person, you still have the work cut out for you. So if you say that it's good because God says it is. Well, then how do you know that this is a God worthy of worship or whatever, you know, because you have things in the Old Testament that don't sound like it's coming from a good God. Mm -hmm. And then if you say no good exists outside of God and God is pointing us to it, well, then if that's true, then good exists outside of God and I can be good then without God. And anything that is pointing to that good is human made. So we still have to talk about it and make decisions and it's going to change every few years because we learn more human perspectives. And so our empathy will change um, as we go because we just get more stories about people. And so we have to change the law or whatever. And so either way you go, we're still in this position of like we're human and conversation is all that we have to figure this out. Like that's all that we've ever had. 
And when we collectively believe that God is behind the rules, how much longer does it take to change the rules? Right. Yeah, that's a really Hundreds good point of years, too. Hundreds if not thousands of years. Because right. you're so sure that allowing a rapist to marry his victim is from God that it takes you forever to just go like, I'm going to just disagree with that. That's That sounds like bullshit. Yeah. No, that's true. That's a good point too. So my questions on the session. So did, when you were kind of, you know, that's that Sunday that you had that, you know, I'm just not going to go to church and you mm, start yeah, maybe pushing shaking. some boundaries. Um, did, did you ever come across some decisions that felt scary to you where it's like, Oh, like I kind of want to push a boundary and try this thing, but I'm a little bit scared of it too. Did you have that kind of um, experience the, the, those first few years of deconstructing? Uh, the first few years of deconstructing, I think were much more fun than what you're pointing to. Um, when I recognized that, that at least the God I believed in wasn't legitimate, that wasn't real and doubted even the, that God himself existed in any way that could be called a being up in the sky. Who's watching, you know, watching our movements and affairs. Um, that, that didn't make sense to me. And so the moment I let go of it, I go like, oh, like I get to be in charge of this. And I just tended to put a ton of research into any choice I made that I had been warned had risk to it. So as I mm. stepped out into the world of conscious altering tools or illegal drugs, whichever way you want to frame it, um, Anything that I was about to try, I would spend 20, 30 hours listening to mm. podcasts, reading books, and it was enjoyable for me to learn. And mm. it was fun to learn how these things work, what they are, how much to take, what's the effect, what to watch out for. And so by the time I made any decision to do something that the, that the world told me was risky, I felt I had a pretty good handle on what I was walking into. And to be honest, I haven't been disappointed by that every Every time, again, for me, not for anyone else, for me, every time I did something that I'd been taught not to do that I felt inwardly was okay to do, I had a great experience. Mm, that's so interesting. I My think, gut seemed to be right. Yeah. So there's two things. I think that as an Enneagram 8, you might enjoy the experience of like, I'm the authority now. Oh, like yeah. that would yeah, be yeah. really fulfilling for you. Mm. I think that that would like make sense especially like for, for a lot of people, but especially yeah. that Enneagram number, I think that would be fun for you. I think where it came up for me was not for myself. Like I, I feel like I had enough foundations of morality that I, I could trust myself and my inner yeah. voice and just my, you know, what, what's the right thing to do here, you know, and just making the best decision you can. But I, I do think I felt a little bit wavery wavering on like um, kid things. So like, you know, now that maybe sex or marijuana, we have, you know, a different framework to look at these things. But like, mm. how does that translate to a 16 year old? Like I needed yeah. some help with like how to do that. And so I think, I think when it came to kids, that's where my like, uh, oh, I need some help here because like I'm without a system, but like they're 14, like they need some boundaries and some guidelines. And where does that come from now? Because I'm making it up out of thin air. And like you said, the best thing that we have is just, um, is just research. And so that brings us to our next topic is that we are really the first generation of humans to have science guided morality. 
So we have people like Brene Brown who are giving us the science behind things like shame. We have Yale University um, doing their class on the science of happiness that was so popular that now you can take it online. And we actually have data on what makes people live happy and fulfilled lives. Part of mm. that is morality too. Um, part of having a happy life is going to be living a moral life and feeling like you justify your existence and that your effect on the world is positive. That's part of living a good life. And so we're really the first generation to be able to do what you're talking about, which is when I have a question, I'm going to research as much as I can on it until I feel good about my decision. And we've really never had a generation before that had access to that kind of data. And so it, it really is something new for humanity that instead of saying, what does God say about it or the holy books or tradition, like what, what does the data say? So deciding something like guidelines around relationships, I was talking to a therapist and, you know, I was talking about this trend that we're seeing where um, people will deconstruct and then they'll open their marriage and for various reasons. And, you know, she said something like, uh, you know, when all the people in that kind of experience are really well educated on the sexual, six sexual health principles, really high communication, um, you know, when it's like across the board, these people are really educated on this kind of thing, then you can see that people will have better, they'll report better for sexual experiences or being happy with their sexual lives. And when that's not there and it's like I deconstructed and I didn't get to live my 20s and I'm just going to go out and live my 20s now, she sees like train wrecks, you know, and it's like, okay, that's data that's helpful, helpful for like making decisions about um, relationships when you're deconstructing. And so like we're really the you're first saying, generation to do that. You're saying that um, the – uh, lifestyle of living monogamous or non-monogamous isn't in and of itself good or bad. It's really the tools and healthiness of the individual and how they then come into those choices and tend to do better when they're, when they yeah, are healthy so, and have the tools to navigate it. Yeah. So it seems like on one side you have like, Oh, marriage is between a man and a woman and it's forever and it's all these things and this is the order and then on the other side it's like well then where there's no there's no god so there's no yeah, boundary to relationships all. and we can all just have sex with each other and it's like no like that actually we have data that shows that there's ways of going about that that really leads to a lot of unhappiness yeah. for the people and also the children involved and so you can actually start digging into data if this was the question that you are talking about, which is a question that comes up with deconstructed sure. couples. And now you can actually look at data that says, how, you know, the people who are making this work where they report that they're having happy sexual lives, you know, what's the difference between these two groups of people? And it's like, wow, it's a lot of education. It's a lot of this. Okay, so this is what I did. It up. And it at least gives you some direction so that when you're, deconstructing from there's only one kind of relationship that is approved by God, right? Which is how most of us in the West were raised. When you're deconstructing that, it still gives you at least some kind of structure and boundary and guideline rather than just like a what ends up being a dumpster fire, which we've seen before. Yeah. Yeah. No, no. The only thing I would add to that is I agree with you. Um, as I live my life, 
I am uh, adeptly aware as I look around at people who are bumping into each other really hard and people who are getting along in connection and love with the people that they care about. The folks that seem to be doing really well, regardless of how they live out their life, are the ones who know how to have healthy communication. They know how to negotiate. They know how to um, express what they're feeling without placing blame on the other person's behavior as wrong simply because it's bumping into the way they want their world to look, right? So when people come into situations as healthy human beings, they two human beings seem to find ways to at least moderately navigate their differences when people who are unhealthy seem to just piss each other off when when they're bumping into each other because it's inevitable you're going to bump into each other. Mm -hmm. I love this comment here though that I I agree with Bill. I love making choices for myself. It helps me realize that I am a good person, right? And I just love that idea that like, oh, like I didn't need, I didn't need all of this in order mm. to know that I'm a good person and that I want I want the best for other people because I, I know what that feels like, right? It, it goes back to empathy. I know what it feels like to receive a thoughtful gift from a friend and I want to do that for others. And we actually get, you know, a lot of mental health benefits from doing stuff like that because evolution gives you a little, hey, that was a good move for the tribe. So I'm going to give you a little dopamine, which is great now because it it, it is better for people and it actually does feel better. So that's actually a great little evolutionary little nugget that you get that um, when you are doing something for other people. Mm. Okay. Yeah. So the next topic that comes up is how do you, um, when you're doing the golden rule, but people are different, how do you deal with that? Because people have different things that offend them. People have different things that they care about. And so how do you do the golden rule um, when people are so different? And so once you have the golden rule is kind of your foundation, just re reciprocity, empathy happens with animals. It's the basis of our morality. It's about evidence of it is about 45,000 years old. We can see evidence of the golden rule happening. Um, and whereas our religions are only about our current religions are only about 6,000 years old. So, I mean, this predates religion, but the next level is core values. And so what we're, what happens is if you're in a group, if you're in a tribe, which you always like to go back to, you know, the original human tribe, if you all had the same core values um, that tribe would die. And we know that because all of the tribes, you know, you have the artist and the dreamer and the worker and the hunter and the shaman and the one figuring out the planets and the one who's good at mediating relationships and the one who's good with children. And these gifts are kind of scattered around the tribe. And so we don't have to fight against this way that we evolved. The best way to contribute to humanity on top of our base of the golden rule has to do with adding your core values to the tribe. So it's not complete moral relativism. There's still a sense of right and wrong, but there's some things that vary from person to person because, um, because their core values are different. And that's a good thing because we need all the core values in a society in order for us to not miss anything that's going to be really essential for us. And so something that you have to do when you are kind of restructuring your moral life is, you know, of course, listening to your own inner compass, being reminded that you are a good person, golden rule, all of those things you're reclaiming. But then also, what are the unique 
core values, the unique morality that you give to the tribe, that you give to humanity, that you need to show up as or else we're all lesser for it. And so, you know, what are your core values? And so when someone says, you know, how do I make this decision? If, if I was running a business and I came to you and I said, how do I make this decision? How do I make a, um, you know, how do I make a, what is it called? like an employee handbook or something like mm. that of all these decisions, yeah. you'll say, okay, what are the core values of your business? And if it's loyalty, then you want, you know, you want your customers to be loyal to you. You want to be loyal to them. That's going to drive how you decide how to do your return policies. If the core of your business is good leadership, you're going to invest that money into leaders. If your core business is helping marginalized women, that's going to drive your decision on how much to pay employees. And so when it gets to these kind of nitty gritty decisions on what's really the best thing for me here, or how do I want to make this decision? Um, one way to kind of have another compass here is to know what are my core values that are really needed in, in the world. And that also really ground me in my sense of morality. So for me, my three core values are authenticity and truth and or truth seeking, I should say, truth seeking and honesty. And I crave that, right? Those, those, those things are really, really important to me and it can help me make decisions when things get really nitty gritty. So do you know, I think your core values are similar. I know truth seeking is a core value for you too. You're muted. When you say, yeah, when you say that, um, much of the same comes up, right? So I want a world where people get to be as much of themselves as possible so long as they don't cause trauma and uh, harm to other people, right? And so that idea of authenticity is important. Um, I want things to be fair, but I don't, but, but we're, I'm going to get off in the weeds because every one of those things is complex as well. Um, I want people to be happy because I think this life is hard enough. Um, let me go down one little tangent. Uh, there's an, there's an agreed amount of trauma that we humans are going to have to suffer collectively over the course of a life as a people. And privilege is the ability to shun off some of your trauma and impose that someone else take it on. And I, whatever those values are, I, I want to be part of nudging the world to a place where we all agree to be willing to take on us the trauma that is inevitable without putting it on somebody else. And that to me is a huge, I, I can't, I don't have a word for it, but it's a huge core value that impacts how I treat others in day-to-day -day conversations and in helping people when things are hard. I think that's a part of your, you have this kind of internal sense of justice that um, really comes out in you and really gives you a lot of strength when you're in the battle on Facebook, getting your sword dirty with people. And uh, I think that relates to your Enneagram number. You know, there, there's that um, really not allowing anyone to kind of cheat, cheat the system 
Yeah. Not on your if, watch, right? Yeah, not if it hurts, especially if it hurts someone else. <laughs> if like, it hurts someone else, yeah. That's if it when cheat you... the system, I could care less. Like cheat the yeah. system. But if it hurts somebody, if it, it gives someone exploiting, else additional Exploiting harm, the system would yeah. probably be a better phrase. Mm. Yeah. I know that that's a core value for you. And, and you hit it? on something. A justice mm -hmm. warrior is going to have a different value system than a peacemaker. Um, uh, an introvert is going to operate differently than an extrovert. Somebody who uh, values... Um, like, let, me, let me say it a different way. I'll give you a personal example. Me and my wife often have a disagreement and we bump into each other because I won't take the side of the people I love if it means putting somebody else uh, at risk of getting hurt unnecessarily. So um, my family sometimes goes, Bill, like, why don't you, why don't you protect us or side with us? And I'll say, well, you know, you kind of got yourself into this thing. And for me to, for me to get you out, the only way I see to do that is to now hurt someone else or cause someone else some harm. And I'm not willing to do that. And, and so it's not that, you know, every one of us makes these decisions about who we protect and how we do it and how loyal we are because loyalty isn't a good value. Sometimes um, if I protect a criminal because it's my kid, is that good or bad? In some instances, that could be really bad. If my kid's a serial killer and I know it and I keep it from coming out so that he can continue to kill people so he doesn't go to prison, my loyalty becomes a negative value. Um, and so I, I really, when I look at a room of people, I am trying to reduce the collective harm across the whole room and I won't necessarily value the people I love over the collective harm being imposed. That's really interesting because my husband's would be the opposite. So his core value is loyalty. And so he operates on a totally different level than, than I do um, because I've learned that that's a really driving and I've learned the virtues of that value when sometimes in deconstruction places, you know, it can be seen as a negative thing, but it can be, um, you know, a really beautiful core value. So when we're talking about really complex problems human problems like we're creating a law that not like no one's going to be perfectly happy like it's just a really it's a compromise mm. we're going to do the best we can as humans so in those situations the best thing that you can do instead of saying what does the bible say or what does god say we can say this is my core value or story that represents my core value that needs to be added to the conversation and if you get enough of that you know, enough of those core values in the tribe, it protects you from t getting too off into one extreme, into one direction. And so your core values are needed in the world and it's going to be part of your moral life because it's what you have to offer the tribe that they're going to be worse off if it's not there. Yeah, which is why <laughs> when you, whoever the rule makers are, whoever the commandment makers are, it needs to be a group that honors diversity because it allows us to see our own blind spots. If I have women and people of color, different ethnicities, uh, both poverty and rich, then you suddenly can uh, allow a conversation where to at least a greater extent, never perfect, to a greater extent, you can show each other your blind spots. And as you're willing to not live in a binary world, you can recognize that while you think something is absolutely right and something else is absolutely wrong, there may be another human being out there who has a perspective that also is true and is the exact opposite of what you think. Right. That's where it gets really complex. This is where the left recently, the political left recently got into trouble because they wanted to say we need more women on the Supreme Court. 
And then at kind of the same time, there was this message from some of the left saying like, there's no difference between men and women. And it's like, Ooh, you can't have both those things. Um, (laughs) And so they kind of got into trouble anyway. So the next kind of topic is kind of a mystical approach to morality. And I think this is something that we talked about when we had David Peck on, or when you were talking with David Peck, um, or the the Sufi who uh, came on our show earlier, is the sense of morality from being. And so what religions do for morality, and I think all religions, all organized religions do this, is that they tell you the story. So this is the story, Adam and Eve, pre-mortal worlds, gods, battles, whatever it is. This is the story. And then they move to, this is the list of commandments. So because this is the story, this is the 10 commandments or the eightfold path or the five pillars of Islam or whatever kind of the list is. And then in every religion, there's kind of this place where there's these hints that transcend kind of the law, right? So you have the story, you have the list of do's and don'ts, and then you have going past the law and doing morality from your heart. So things like, yes, I will help people on Sundays, even though the law says not to. Or in the Old Testament, it's called, you know, writing the law upon your heart, where you can let the list go and just move into being, right? So every religion kind of has this story and then list and then these hints, the mystics keep this side going of like morality from being. You can let the list go and just love people from your being and let that guide your ethics. And so one of the greatest gifts that mysticism gives me, any mystic tradition of any religion, is that it flips it upside down. So rather than do story ethics being, you start with being. You start with your core, your goodness. Like uh, like one of the audience members says, the, the discovery that I am good right? Your best self. So you connect to that first and then your ethics come naturally. If I am deeply, deeply connected to my best self, right? And I've done whatever contemplation practice that helps me to get there. um, It's easy to not want to steal from you, right? Because you are me. And I've experienced in my meditation this morning, I did a loving kindness meditation. Let's say I'm really connected to my inner goodness. I don't need a commandment then that tells me not to steal. That's just going to flow naturally out of me. I don't want to steal from you. That would just make me feel awful. I don't want to do that at all. And so, you know, it's, it's this interesting switch that you can do, not just as a mystic in the religion, but even as you're deconstructing from religion to connect to your own being first, to connect to your goodness, make decisions from that place And then the fun thing that you can do is once you do that, you can go back into story now that it's no longer literal or needed for your morality. And story can just be a place that you play. You know, I still enjoy sometimes uh, hearing a biblical story that has some kind of cool symbolism or union, whatever, because now it's a place that I play and it's no longer the foundation for the sense of who I am or um, my my morality. So that that's a really cool switch that you can do that mystics always do. Um, I, I think in some ways connected. We created a world where we send our kids off to school and school became a thing we do because there was so much information in the modern human's world that we needed a vehicle in order to pass on 
ideas, the basic groundwork of like, hey, we got to make sure the next generation has these tools, right? And we can't trust every household to give it to their kids. So we have to collectively as a system go, here's the vehicle by which we're going to teach our kids to understand basic math and language, our writing system, uh, to be able to collaborate with each other and work together. And, um, and I say that to say that religion is a really workable tool to pass morality down, whether it's good morality or bad morality with that we can debate. And I, I think it's an absolute mix, but it does work as a vehicle to say, okay, the next generation, we want you to understand what honesty is. We want you to understand what, uh, um, what's fair and what's, what's allowed and how we can hurt others. And it's allowable and how we do not hurt others because it's not allowable. Religion does really good at that. The, the trouble is that religion, get, it imposes on the entire collective what their value system will be. So you have a different value system than me. And there are insights that you have that would be helpful to me to live my life. And there's insights I have that would be helpful to you living your life. But we live in a system, again, pretending we're in a religion, we live in a system that says God has already laid down the law. He's already decided what the value system is. The conversation is over, and it's why bad things are allowed to perpetuate generation after generation for hundreds, if not thousands of years. And so we've got to figure out a vehicle by which we can pass morality on, but also not be so cocky and arrogant that the system is irreproachable because there's a magical being in the sky who's laid down the law that folks in real time can go, look, I know for 300 years we've had this rule, but it's not working for us anymore. Let's have an open and honest conversation about what needs to change because our, our society, our tribe is not the same anymore. Something has moved and changed. Some group has moved in that's different than us and it doesn't help them to reduce their trauma. Um, uh, we now have this new modern thing that we've invented that now we need to make room for that to operate in our world. Anyway, it's a ton of, it's a ton of ideas, but religion works well on one end and it is the absolute barrier to progress on the other. Mm. And whatever we, whatever we come up with, it has to have staying power like religion and get rid of the arrogance and allow in real time for us to go, Hey, right now, this moment, let's all recognize we're doing something wrong. I, I feel like that's just like a really wise thing to say because we out, out in all these conversations, we get a lot of, you know, religion is worth saving. And then we get a lot of um, religion is the worst. Let's go down with it. And what you and I are, are both trying to say is that like, wow, replacing religion is really difficult and we haven't done it. And one of the errors of secularism is that we don't have a system mm -hmm. to give moral education to children mm -hmm. and they're feeling it. Do you know how many teenagers don't know what their meaning and purpose is and really mm -hmm. struggle with anxiety and depression mm -hmm. um, because, or it's at least exacerbated by um, that piece really being missing. Mm -hmm. Um and so it's a really complex problem because some people are really hopeful that if we can deconstruct religion, it'll give us the impetus to create something better because there'll be a need and humans are creative. And if there's a need, we'll just, we'll create something better in the vacuum. And then some people are really um, pessimistic that we'll be able to do that because one of the best things about story and stories that pass on 
a sense of a moral education is that, you know, stories have a little bit of magic to them. That's what makes them memorable. You need to have something familiar with just like a little twist in it to make it memorable. And so how do we do that um, without the temptation of making that literal where it then becomes the problem? And that is not an easy question. Mm -hmm. And that is not a question where any atheist or religious person, or, you know, I listen to all these debates, no one quite knows if we're going to be able to do it because it hasn't been done yet. Right. Can you make, can you make a moral education without the magical stories that you have to believe in? We actually really don't know. Um, But we're, you know, coming from where you and I came from and, and the moral issues that we were dealing with in that system, you and I are saying we're willing to try. Yeah. But it's more complex than people realize at, <clears throat> at first glance. No, no, I'm completely on board with what you're saying. Um, I, I don't, I don't know that we're going to be able to because I think one thing is it does something beautifully, and it also inevitably does all this bad. And how do we literally sit down with a giant world society, which we're which we're arriving at, right? We're all you know, that we have so much interaction with the, with, with uh, the British, with Chinese, with the Russians, that we live in this world where we're all trying to hold our piece of the pie and work together and have a trade system. How do we create a world where morality gets passed down? We let go of the magic, but the morality being passed down still sticks and it values improvement. It values progress. It values um, allowing itself to change because parts of it aren't working. I I don't know. I have no idea. Yeah, but you hit on something really key there is that maybe 200 years ago, the right thing to do was just to fix the system as best as you could, whatever the, you know, whatever this, you and I still have this capacity to take any story and kind of make it a really good lesson, right? I can still do it. You can still probably do it if if I asked you to. Yeah. And so maybe that was the best way to go about it. But the problem with modern society now is that because we need the whole world to be on board to solve global problems, now everybody's like imaginary stories and rules and gods, even if it has substantial benefits to society, becomes such a problem when you're trying to actually say, "What what is the reality here and how can we fix it? So it may be that we have to at this time and that uh, it's best to try to wrestle with these systems in this time versus times previously because we're having to solve global problems. And for that, you know, if we're going to be solving something like global warming, like if that is really going to be a problem for future generations, then you believing Jesus is coming to fix it is now a huge problem that affects me. And so now yeah. it's time. I know Jesus does a lot of amazing things for society. I, I get, I know the whole thing, but maybe that's where we have to let it go because now we're facing global problems. Yeah. If Jesus can't solve nuclear war, if Jesus can't solve pollution, if Jesus can't solve global warming, it's not going to matter what else <laughs> Jesus can save. Mm. That's kind of where I landed on that on that too. So I have one last question for you and then I think we'll save the rest for next time. So next time we're going to, um, unpack, I have a list here. So we're going to be talking about guilt, 
using guilt as a kind of your course corrector in living your moral life and how to separate it from shame, which we'll have to unpack. I haven't seen any religious person not have to kind of like re you know reorient themselves when it comes to shame and guilt and and how to look at that we can i think we should talk about politics a little bit um which we usually shy away from but i think the reason that we should bring it up is because it's a red flag that happens in post-religious communities where in the vacuum of not having a religious community um some political movement will become your new religion. And I think that that can be really dangerous and something that happens quite a bit and that we need to talk about for, you know, post deconstruction and then uh, integrity and a couple more things that we can unpack. Oh, and then pleasure, you know, how do you, we have this huge, if you were raised in America, um, you know, this country was, shaped by Christianity, but it's a particular form of Christianity, right? It's Puritanism. So we're taught that pleasure is dangerous and women especially like must control their pleasure in order to be socially acceptable. And so um, how to unpack pleasure and have pleasure actually be um, something really positive and a great thing, you know, just a great thing, a great reason to be alive. That that takes a lot of shifting if you're coming away from a religion. And I want to make sure we have time for that. But the last thing that I wanted to ask is um, if you don't, so if you don't, this is, this is a, an interesting thing that came out in a debate. If you don't want to do the work of um, kind of establishing your own spirituality, your own inner authority, doing the research, you know, you, when you have sometimes a problem, you'll go online for 30 hours and you'll go on Reddit and read people's personal experiences to make a decision. If you don't want to do the work, is it better for you to stay in the system? Ooh, that's a great question. Um, you know, yeah, James Fowler, I remember these early readings of stages of faith that the majority of the population will never get out of binary thinking, right? And so those folks, even with a flawed moral system, they're better off with the system. And so if we're going to create a world, um, if we're going to create a world where we can move beyond religion and the flawed morality it gives us to move to something better, then we're going to have to equip people to think in non-binary ways. So now we got to somehow wake up the world. And, and, and now a whole nother episode is whether waking up the world actually ends society too. Like maybe the only way society really does well in evolution and where we're at and how much time has gone by, it would actually indicate that there is a teeter-totter, there is a balance. And if we don't find that balance, if we get too many people woke, that's not good. And if we have too many people who believe in an outer authority, that's not good. And um, I don't know what that balance is, but I'm, I'm a little scared by too many people becoming individual and having their authority rested inside. And I'm really scared of people who don't and their ability to sway entire populations to invade countries or the threat of drop pushing a button and dropping nuclear bombs on another uh, group of humans that you decide are your foe and ending life for them as they know it. I don't it's know. A, it's a, here's why this question is so hard for me. 
is it's something, um, Ooh, I can't remember who said it. <clears throat> I think it was actually Sam Harris, uh, or it came out in the Sam Harris, Jordan Peterson debates, but I can't remember which one said it. And it was this idea and it sounds offensive, but, it, but it, it's not meant to be offensive that if you're dumb, it is better for you to be a conservative. Now that does not mean that conservative people are dumb, right? There are very, very smart people who their core values end up on this, on the conservative side. The point is that if you are not um, going to be really thoughtful in tackling whatever the, the thing is, then it's better to stick with whatever the tradition is because in the tradition, there is some kind of safety, right? It has lasted a long time. It has been a tool for a lot of people. And if you don't want to make another better tool, just stick probably with that tool, right? It's a good argument that if you, if you don't want to do the work, it's better for you to stay in a tradition. It's going to be safer. If you don't want to think about um, how much alcohol, it, you know, you want to have and really think about that and unpack that and whatever, it's probably better for you to be, uh, in a system that puts some boundaries on that for you because that mm -hmm. has helped a lot of people. And so it's kind of the sense that, you know, when I'm talking about my own spiritual home that got really bulldozed with deconstruction, and then I rebuilt a new home because I learned all these new tools, and I really like the spiritual home that I'm in much better, right? It's 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 me. It's it's more beautiful. It's more authentic. All those things. But if someone would have bulldozed that house and then not given me any tools, I don't think that I maybe would have been better. I may not have been right. And so here's the clincher for me is that if you really believe that it's better for some people to stay in the system because they're in a place that they're not going to be able to get new tools to do the work to be to make it better, then is it wrong to be tearing down systems because it's serving those people? And mm -hmm. that's a really interesting argument. Yeah, and it makes make it... me more careful about like destroying people's foundations before they have the tools to rebuild it. Yeah, we you make a great point. We we can easily on this side of life look at every religion and go, man, they're not treating people good in that arena. We can see how if you're an outsider to the tribe, you are really traumatized. If you, you know, insider versus outsider. So the insiders all have their own trauma, but if you don't belong in the tribe, you're the either the enemy or just somebody who's left or somebody who is uh, on the on the margins of it or kicked out, you're treated like crap. And, but as you point out, take Christianity, for instance, it's made it a few thousand years. Uh, take the Israelite or Jewish tradition, and now we go back further. And while we all can look at uh, Islam and pick out definitive problems that are perpetuated and um, enlarged by the outer authority and the uh, their canon and scripture and the permission that it gives to certain outer authorities to promote a very violent nature, at the same time, that system has survived, and at least the collective safety of the tribe has been moderately okay. And if we go in just tearing things down and beginning to build up new things, um, we better tiptoe into that and tread really carefully because there are repercussions everywhere if we don't do it right.
Mm, yeah, that's so good. And it, it really gives me pause uh, when I get really on my soapbox and I just want to tear down all the systems because I yeah. just hate all of it and there's patriarchy and all of it and blah, blah, blah. Um, but that point to me really makes me be aware that even though I think you and I have had the privilege and the tools to be able to do the work to create a really flourishing spirituality on this side of life. Um, you know, it's almost like, it's almost like with food, like you and I went to culinary school and we learned how to make better food, but that doesn't mean that you take away, you know, you, for, for people who are in a system, they're getting ritual, they're getting community, they're getting contemplation, they're getting awe, they're getting art, they're getting, you know, belonging at some level, right? They're, they're getting a lot of things. And so to take that away without improving it um, is really not helpful for that person and really makes me be aware of Yes, I want to put these conversations out there. Yes, I want to be authentic and honest, but I never want to be the bulldozer for someone else's spiritual home if they don't have tools to rebuild it. And I think that mm. that in the end is a lot of compassion and makes me be a little bit more aware of what I say around believers um, from a place of compassion, even though I do get in a mood sometimes where I just want to like, your house is built on the most stupid foundation that is not stable at all. And I just want to push it over. But I think in the end, it may not be the, the, the best thing to do. The, the cool thing about the way you frame these conversations is you make it clear that it, it's not even a matter of improving. Like, like you and I could sit down and in 20 minutes, we could improve any given religion with 20 things. You know, stop doing that and do this instead. But you and I both recognize that it's not 20 things and it's not 300 things and it's not 6,000 things. It, it probably, in all its permutations, it's probably something like 100,000 things. And so whatever system is, if humans make it another 5,000 years and get better at being human and being kinder to the planet, to ourselves and to other life on it, it's going to involve us having to fix a hundred thousand things. And, and I don't even think we even, and you don't even understand what all those are. So how can you run in and start to think you've got a good hold on it? And you always self-acknowledge like, man, religion's got a lot of bad stuff going, but we better be aware. There's a hundred thousand things you got to fix before you could even educated, make an educated guess that you improved it. Yeah. It's like the argument of entropy that, <clears throat> in a world of entropy where it's really hard to get a tradition even going because um, the world is just so complex and everything just breaks down and communication is really difficult because even the words that I'm saying, you're hearing in a different way than I'm even saying them and all that kind of thing. Um, anything that lasts a few thousand years is not something to scoff at, right? Which is why you and I love sources like Elaine de Baton, who like, hey, let's take these tools from religion and let's just, you know, let's just scuff them up a little bit and because there's some good stuff here. And so it's just a reminder for me when I get kind of in, on those atheist kicks, because sometimes it can be so easy to criticize religion that um, if, if people are going to be better 
in the system because they don't have either the privilege or the tools or the desire or the same core values to rebuild that system in their own life, which um, is a really beautiful journey, but it's one that you have to choose. And so we can't put that journey on other people, or I think it makes the cause um, worse because then we're just kind of being bullies. And I definitely have been guilty of that. But um, if you do, like, like in the earlier comment that I started with, if you are one of those people that are brave and say, I'm going to take on this project, right? Um, morality and kind of shifting your idea of morality so that you have your own you know, inner compass is definitely gonna be part of that journey. And it's just, you know, it's just like a house. If, if you don't know anything about building a house, it's probably better for you to, to be in a house that yeah. has already been built and just yeah. kind of tweak it when you Great learn analogy. new things and make it better. Um, but if I, I really think that the listeners of this audience are people who I consider to be really brave because they had a dream that it could be better. This house could be better. I could build it better than this and then mm. deconstruct it. And maybe for a while you were a little bit spiritually homeless, right? And experienced being raw a little bit. But I, I think the journey is really worth it. But it's a journey that you have to choose and we can't force it on others. Yeah. And, and we'll probably talk about this the next time we revisit this conversation. But whatever mechanisms we, the human race, invent to lead the, the new systems, um, We've got to get to a place where science, data, facts, research, trump invisible beings in the sky who have their select number of vessels that they speak to. And those vessels are the ones we, you know, my vessels inside my tribe are the voices I trust to give me reality or truth or a better way because it, it, it's just not working. Yeah. And how do we include some magic? in doing that, but not enough magic that we fall for it completely. Like, like how do we teach kids magic and bait? You know, because you and I both understand like the books that kids read, the, the books that are read to them. Um, my, my grandson's favorite book right now is the gingerbread man. And uh, I don't know if there's lessons in that or not. That's another day, <laughs> but it's a, it's a magical story and he loves it. We have to have a way that when somebody's maturity or age reaches a certain moment that we pull back the veil and we go, ha, that was just magic. But, you, but it, but it helped you to gain the footing and foundation you needed. Now let's go into the world and create a better world. There's this quote that says that um, fiction tells you the truth through a lie. So like, there's a lot of truth in Harry Potter, right? Mm -hmm. But like, I don't have to believe that, you know, Hogwarts yeah. exists, even though actually I really wish it did. Yeah. So anyway, yeah. so we'll keep unpacking this and we'll bring it all. We'll bring, I know we went into a lot of different directions, but next time we'll really bring it together. And so hopefully by the end of, of the next podcast, when someone asks you, how do you know how to choose bet between right and wrong when you don't have religion or commandments or God, you'll really be able to pull this together and say, um, you know, I have empathy. I follow the golden rule. I know my core values. I know I'm happier when I live a moral life. 
um, I've unpacked pleasure and I know how to experience pleasure without shame, without also becoming a heroin addict. I know how to make moral decision, moral decisions from a place of being. I know my political values. I know how to separate guilt from shame. I know my actions matter because I'm connected to all of this. Once we bring that all together, you'll really have a sense of like, I know I'm a good person and I know kind of my moral path and, and guide here. Um, and I don't have to be afraid of that question of how can you be a good person? How can you make decisions when, when you don't believe in God, there's a way to kind of re shift all of those things and have your morality be part of a good life. Three really quick things. First mm. one is, um, some people are going to make the argument of like, why even do this if it's too impossible to build the next system? And I'll simply say that I think the world is a better place the more people who get to a place where you and I think about things the way we do. I think this is a better way to be human than the binary thinking and the harm that gets done when you think you have absolute truth inside of a system. So while we don't know that we have the answer, us nudging the collective further into it I think has a much better chance of producing a better, healthier world where people uh, can reduce the trauma in their life and the harm in their life. Number one. And when, yeah, let me just stop you there. So and any time that more, like we see morality has taken like a jump, like, Oh, like the society used to not include these people. And now they do that jump in morality happened because of a conversation. Mm. Like the only way that we are able to bump into each other as humans and figure out how to, live in a way where my needs are met and I'm able to live a, you know, a happy, authentic life, but I'm aware of other people. The only way that we're able to do that is through conversation. And so mm. conversations like this conversations of watching YouTube, which some of the people in the audience have also done and you've done um, conversation is the way that we move the moral needle towards more good for more people. And it's yeah. all that we've ever had. And when you talk about in the Bible, even when things change, there's conversations that are happening that change people's minds, right? Because I change my mind when I hear someone else's story. I change my mind when I get a new thought that isn't in my usual thought loop that I have to consider. And yeah. so conversations like this is, it's not just the best tool that we have. It's really been the only tool that we have to move morality to more good for more people. You either have to see another perspective or you have to hear someone else tell you another perspective. Absolutely. The second thing is, folks, if uh, if you do me a giant favor, if you listen to this on some third-party app, go on that app and just leave us a review. Put a, put a really good review in. It, it really helps us out. The more positive reviews. By the way, I think we have like a 4.8 or something like that on Apple out of five stars. We're doing really good. Um if you leave a review, the more reviews that are there, the more visibility our podcast has on those apps. So we would very much appreciate it. If you're listening to this on YouTube, please hit the subscribe button, hit the like on each of these episodes when you, when you see them. And then the third thing is folks, um, you know, we're always going to say this, please go to almostawaken.org, click the donate button, send a few bucks to us. Uh, I think we've raised, um, I don't remember what the amount is, but we've raised maybe a couple thousand dollars so far this year. I think last year we raised 300 bucks. So having you on Brit is, I think has made a big jump to that, but folks help, uh, help Brit and I not to get burned out. Help us to keep this thing going. Um, help us to, to feel motivated, I guess, to keep having these conversations. Cause at some point we will burn out if, if it's not there. 
Um, go on, click donate, send us a few bucks a month, two bucks a month, five bucks a month, 10 bucks a month. It doesn't matter, just something, because uh, it does build up over time and it is growing and, and we're appreciative of that. For everybody who does donate, thank you. For those who listen, we appreciate you. And I, I just thought the conversation today was phenomenal and so I can't good. wait to have part two. Yeah, so good. And just to step it up a notch, I do think, and it may not, it not, it may not be us, but I do think part of uh, a moral life, something that I tried to do when I no longer paid tithing is to take at least a portion of that money, maybe not always 10%, but at least a portion of that money. I think part of a moral and ethical life is supporting the things that you believe need to be in the world. Right. And so I used to, when I paid tithing, I would never pay like a subscription to a news thing. I would never pay to support a podcast. Right. And I really, um, enjoy now knowing that I put my money into the voices and news and stories and people and causes that I want to see in the world. And I do think that that is um, a more ethical way of what I used to do, which is just pay 10% to the system and ask no questions. Right. Um, and I, I think that, um, you know, paying to support the voices that you want to hear in the world is a great way to give volume to those voices. And so if we happen to be one of those, we would love your support. Yeah. And somebody here just asked, you know, Bill, if I donate, does it go to a specific podcast or Mormon discussions in general? You get to pick. Uh, so if you like this program, if you go to almostawaken.org and click the donate button, that money goes into a individual specific campaign to Almost Awakened only. Um, and so it goes there and Brit, uh, gets uh, a majority of that money. And so if we build up the amount of money that comes into that podcast, then she has a, uh, income that comes in on a regular basis so that, so that she isn't spending hours and hours and hours producing content and years from now, just being burned out because it takes up a large chunk of her life and there isn't any kind of reward for her to do it. So if you donate um, to any particular podcast in our umbrella, that money goes to that particular campaign. You can also go to mormondiscussions.org, click the donate button, and you can pick and choose which podcast you give money to. Uh, so we very much appreciate each of you. And for those who, and as you said too, not only do you have an obligation on a moral level, and again, not to, not to sit here and put too much pressure, but not only uh, in a moral world should you um, donate money to things that are going to help build a better world and create the conversations you want to see happening. But also to the same regard, you ought to give to things that helped you get out of the systems and beliefs that were unhealthy to you. And so if you, as you point out, if you're a believing Mormon and you're now deconstructed, you got 10% of your money back, take, take a half a percent of that. Mm -hmm. And give it to the the podcast or the entity or the conversations that most deeply helped you to get out of that system and pay it forward. Yeah, I totally agree. And thank cool. you. We had such a great uh, audience discussion in the background. We were able to put up some of the comments, but not all of them. And we're always so appreciative yeah. to get other voices in the conversation. What a cool community. Britt, you're awesome. What a great conversation. I can't wait for part two. So folks, keep tuning in. And hopefully we're all a, a little more uh, awakened, at least a little more almost awakened. All right. Bye, Anything everyone. else, Britt? Nope, that's it for me. All right. Take it easy, everybody. Britt, you're amazing. Have a great day, and uh, we'll see you guys next week. Bye, friend. 
This has been another Almost Awakened episode. Check us out at almostawakened.org, where you can check out past episodes, make a donation to keep this podcast running, email us a question or comment, or find out more about the resources shared in today's episode. For coaching opportunities or extra support, visit nonsensespirituality.com to meet with certified spiritual director, Brittany Hartman.